Praise God. We're going to go ahead and continue on in the book of Acts this morning. We are on chapter 7. We're going to read verses 23 through 53. And uh, let me give you a quick recap of where we're at. Um, Two weeks ago, Pastor Joseph finished preaching. um, And when we finished, Stephen had just been arrested. Right, and Stephen's referred to as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. He had previously been one of the men chosen to serve the widows as a response to the complaints of the Hellenists. And if you remember the Hellenists, they were they were upset because their their widows weren't getting the same care and, and respect and, and caretaking as the 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 widows of the Jewish people, of the, the Hebrew people. So the, the disciples, uh, the apostles responded, and they picked out 12 men, and Stephen was one of those men, right? Seven men, sorry. Um, that's why I keep Joseph, Pastor Joseph around. He's my, he's my personal Google when I don't remember where stuff is. He's like a walking concordance. So if you ever need to know something about the Bible, just ask him. So uh, anyway, picked out those seven men. Stephen's one of them. That's where he starts. He starts serving. And next thing you know, he is uh, in Acts 6, 8. We find out that uh, it says Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So Stephen goes from just serving widows to now just being uh, a mighty man of God, having an impact on the area that's around him, the people that are around him. And you remember that the folks didn't like what was going on. The, the religious leaders are getting upset at what Stephen has to say. So they end up riling up men against him. They end up getting people to spread rumors and false things about him. Um, because when they originally disputed what he was saying, it turns out that he had too much wisdom and, and the Holy Spirit was with him too strongly and they couldn't refute what he was saying, so they resorted to just making stuff up. said he was blaspheming Moses and God and that uh, uh, he was speaking against this holy place, referring to the temple and, and the land of Israel and referring, and he said that he was speaking against the law, you know, which is what Moses had given, um, or rather God had given through Moses. So they they rile up all these leaders and they spur them on to arrest Stephen. Now when Stephen is offered a chance to defend himself against these allegations, that's where he begins this big long speech that we started in verse 1 last week. And as we're going through the second half of that speech, I want to remind you the themes that, that we're looking for as Stephen is making this speech. And the first one is that there is progress and change in God's plan for his people. And right, we're looking at all this evidence in the Old Testament. Israel's history is, is basically God's acts in this world. And we'll see that it's, God doesn't, follow, doesn't have a, a blueprint where he always does the same thing every time. How God works is always changing. The second theme that we're going to look at is that the blessings of God are not limited to the land of Israel, nor the temple, the temple grounds. People have worshipped and served God long before there was a temple. And God has moved and showed up and worked in many different places. God doesn't live in a temple. He doesn't live in a place created by human hands. And then finally, the third theme is that Israel in its past has a recurring pattern of opposition to God's plan and the many sins. Israel just had tended to have a, a pattern of missing what God was doing. And how they actually respond to Stephen is how they've responded to every prophet throughout their own history, including Jesus, which is rejecting God's plan and then inciting violence against the one who brings it. 
Now, so far, as we looked at last week, Stephen has primarily been focusing on the history of the Jews and how God has moved in many different places through many different men, right? How God's power is not limited to just the land of Israel or the temple grounds. And we had just gotten to the part where Moses was born, right? We saw that uh, Moses was miraculously saved by God, and uh, uh, now we're going to continue on into his adulthood. So after that recap, you guys ready? 23 through 25 says, When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brother would understand that God was giving him salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So Moses has been living with the royal family, right, with the Pharaoh for 40 years. He's had a pretty good life. But he still feels a connection to his brethren, to, the, to, to his brothers and sisters who are the Hebrew people. He, he may have been uh, raised with the royal family, but he was still a Hebrew. And his first attempt to connect with and lead his people is this story right here. It came when he went to rescue one of his fellow Israelites. He went to check in on his brothers and sisters. He sees an Egyptian man taking advantage of one of his brothers and Moses goes ahead and does something about it, and ultimately he ends up killing this Egyptian, saving the man. And God had sent Moses, that's what the scripture says here, that God had sent Moses to go ahead and, 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 and basically be salvation for this one guy, to keep him from being harassed, to set him free. And if you know the story, this is, this is the first time that, that God sends Moses to connect with the people, you know it doesn't work out, that they just accept him, and they're ready to receive him and move on under his leadance and guidance. If you know the story, it, this isn't quite how it worked out. Has anybody here ever tried to help somebody and they reject your help? They misunderstand your intentions. They misunderstand what you're trying to do and you try to help. That's what happened here. Moses is sent by God to intervene with the people of Israel. His motives are good. His heart is good. He's just trying to help this guy, and they end up rejecting him. And you're actually going to see this pattern multiple times. The first time Moses goes to the, to the Israelites, he's rejected, and it's not till the second time he returns that he's accepted. You're going to find the same thing with Joseph. We'll look at it in a while. Joseph goes to his brothers, lets them know what God has plans for him, and he's rejected. And it's not till many years later that he's finally accepted the second time that he sees them. And I bet you if you just think about it long and hard enough, you'll see the parallels with Jesus. Then in verse 26 through 28, it says, On the following day, he appeared to them. As they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So here's where Moses starts to see that things aren't moving exactly as he thought that they would be moving. You see, they didn't see him as one that God had sent. They didn't accept that God had sent him. How but God did send him? God was with Moses from the beginning. We see God's hand in Moses' life from the very beginning. And, and just like 
they, they so often do is we're going to see throughout history this recurring pattern of rejecting the men God sinned and God's plan for their life. The Israelites began to reject him. He had just saved a man's life from an Egyptian who was harassing him. Remember, he came across him fighting. Um, but then he comes up and he, he comes across some of his brothers and they're fighting amongst themselves. And he's like, you know, rightfully so. He's like, what are you guys doing? Like, I, I don't get it. Don't you guys have enough by being oppressed by the Egyptians? Isn't there enough fighting and punishment and, and hurt and pain there? Why are you fighting amongst one another? You see, God had sent him to unify the, the Israelites and to set them free. And, and his first step was, say, listen, you guys need to stop fighting amongst yourself. But then they reject him and say, who has made you ruler and judge over us? Now we know the answer. It was God. And we're going to see that play out fully when he comes back in 40 years. But, but notice what Stephen is doing here. You see, Stephen is telling this story to essentially rebuke these religious leaders. He's basically saying to them, listen, you are behaving just like the men here. God has sent someone to you to lead you, to be your ruler and judge. God has sent him to save you, to set you free from captivity, to set you free from the bondage of sin and death. Yet you're behaving just like these men, rejecting Jesus, saying, Jesus, who are you? to be ruler and judge over us. And you'll remember that this is one of the themes that I told you to watch out for. When God's people reject the one whom he has sent and miss what God is trying to do. And you're going to have that in your own lives as well. God is going to send people into your lives to speak into your life. And sometimes... They might give you a rebuke like Moses. Say, why are you doing the thing that you're doing? It's not right. And you have a choice how to respond. You can either respond in order to grow and recognize what's going on, or you can reject the person that God put in your life and say, who are you to be my ruler and judge? The religious people had treated Jesus the same way. And they're essentially saying the same thing to Stephen as these guys were saying to Moses. Why do you think Jesus should be our ruler and judge? And it's funny because they're essentially asking Stephen why he's teaching this. And if I was Stephen, I'd be like, it's not me. It was God who sent Jesus. And you're going to look at the, the Israel, Israelite history and just see time and time again where they, they miss what God is trying to do. And they don't just miss it. Have you noticed that? It's not like that they were oblivious. They don't just miss it, but they reject it and actively oppose it. How many know that Scripture is written for us to learn from? Scripture was written down for our benefit. We should be learning from that and start having an eye open to see when God is trying to move so that we can respond instead of reject and oppose it. Amen? So we continue on, verses 29 through 30, it says, At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. 
so once me, uh, Moses realizes that his people aren't going to support him, matter of fact, they're, they're actively opposing him, and it actually might turn into death for him because he had killed the Egyptian. Now he's worried about them turning him in. He ends up uh, fleeing to Midian. And he lives in Midian for 40 more years. He has two sons while he's there. So now he's 80 years old. And how many of you guys feel like that once you've hit that part, your life is done? There's not much more God can use. Now, granted, they lived a little bit longer, but not much longer. You would think, man, Moses missed it. He ran away. He he. he God wanted to use him. The people rejected him. He ran away. I mean, what more can Moses do? But the truth is, is that Moses isn't done. He's just getting started. God has other plans for his life. It's never too late to start serving God. He'll use you no matter how old you are, how young you are. You know, for us, as we look at the church, we need to be careful. Um, most of us are willing to accept that somebody who's a little bit older has wisdom and, and we, can, we can learn from them. That's a good thing. But how many of us are so quick to judge somebody who's young, thinking that they can't be used by God because they're too... Those children back in the room have just as much power as we do when God works through them. Matter of fact, some of them might have more power because they believe like little children. They just believe what God says is true. All of us are making up excuses or trying to rationalize how God can move. Your age has no bearing on how God can use you. Amen. So Moses, he's 80 years old. God has other plans for him. So now the, the, if, if you've read your Bible, and you probably don't have to read your Bible, just been around church for a while, you know the story of the burning bush. God speaks to Moses in this well-known story through a bush that's on the side of the mountain, that's, that's, that's on fire, but it's not being consumed, it's not being burned up. And now Stephen is transitioning through a couple of phases here, but he's really focusing on, on God being able to bless and move no matter where he's at. Right? He's not limited to some land, to some temple grounds. I mean, God was moving and blessing Moses, not just, as e not just in Egypt, right? Because now Moses was in Egypt. His life was spared. Um, he, he's grown up with some, um, in, in a, in a, in a, with the royal family, right? And God totally blessed him. And then he runs off to Midian, and God blesses him there too. And you're like, well, what do you mean God blesses him? We had two, two boys while he was there. Obviously, he's, he's, he's living his life. God is still blessing him with children. God is, 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 is there with him. And then God speaks to him in Mount Sinai, which is either uh, in Midian or right on the edge of Midian. Uh, turns out, as I was studying this, uh, uh, we don't actually really know, or rather there's some... some uh, argument where Mount Sinai really is. There's the traditional place that it was that was um, uh, by, the, by the Jews. They, they think they know where it is, but really if you look into the history, at some point they just decided that's where it was. There's like several thousand years where they don't know where it is. And uh, if you look at the scripture, it, it, you actually come to a different conclusion. So it might have been in Midian, might have not been in Midian. I don't think it's important. But the reality is, is that it wasn't the promised land. It wasn't the temple grounds. It wasn't Israel. And God is moving. Not only is God moving, he's moving in a bush in the desert. And Stephen reminds them that this burning bush, 
is out in the wilderness. There's no temple. There's no tabernacle. It's nowhere near Jerusalem, yet God is still moving. So in verses 31 through 32, it says, When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. So Moses sees this bush on fire off in the distance. It's not being consumed. And he's like, that's weird. I'm going to go check that out. He approaches it and he's amazed at the sight of it. And then from the bush, God speaks to him. Not from the temple, not from the tabernacle. None of those things even exist yet, but from a bush burning in the desert. How many know that the way God moves is different throughout history? I mean, the, the burning bush, uh, God speaking through a burning bush, this, now that this happened, this doesn't become the new way that God speaks to his people. Did you notice that? You look at all throughout the history and the way God is moving and interoperating with his people, it changes throughout the history of Israel. But we are starting to see a pattern of God speaking to his chosen deliverer in foreign lands. Right? Abraham was spoken to by God in a foreign land. Jacob was led to and through a foreign land. Joseph was spoken to and blessed in a foreign land. And now Moses is being spoken to by God in a foreign land, ready to deliver his people from the slavery they're experiencing in Egypt. It seems like where the people are doesn't matter a lick to God. He can speak to and move through them either way. Amen. And then notice how he mentions the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same God with the same plan moving in and through different men in foreign lands. Stephen is really driving this point home that there is not some... uh, uh, ritual that God uses to speak to people. There's not some pattern that he only uses, but it's changed. None of these were like the previous. Every time God spoke to a man and moved through them, there was no formula. It changed every time. And, and Stephen's trying to drive that home. There doesn't have to be some formula for, for God moving and speaking to be legitimate. And if that's the case throughout history, why are the religious leaders telling God how he's allowed to move right now? Because they're upset about Jesus, right? They said, oh no, God only speaks to the priests in the temple, and this is, this is the way it works. But it's been changing throughout history. Why, why are they so dead set on God not being able to change it now? And then as we go on to 33 and 34, it says, And the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. So when Moses, he approaches this burning bush, God speaks to him, and God tells him to remove his sandals because he stands on holy ground. And this is important because it demonstrates that God can move from wherever he wants. God does not move in a place because it is holy. How many know that this ground right here, it wasn't holy, therefore God was able to show up there? No, when God shows up, that place becomes holy, amen? 
God's not limited to some location. Geographic boundaries or walls made by human hands has never been a limitation to God. God is not more effective in this room right now because we say it's church. God is just as effective in each and every one of you. If you're at your home and you pray for your kids, that's just as powerful as me praying for them here. If you're at a hospital with a, a friend or a coworker and you pray for them, God can move just as powerfully there than if you invite him here for, for me or Pastor Joseph to pray for them. God is not limited to specific people or specific places. Matter of fact, God will move just as powerfully through you is anybody else in this room, if you just put your trust and faith in him, be crazy enough to believe that he is who he says he is and that he'll do what he says he's going to do. Amen. God can move just as powerfully in a building or a street or your home or even just an alleyway. God's not limited by where we're at. And God shows up in his timing too. Moses may have been waiting 40 years to fulfill his destiny. Or I guess really at this point, 80 years. But the people of Israel have been waiting for 400 years. And now the time is right. So God is more concerned about his plan than where you're at. Amen. The time that had, prophesied, had been prophesied had come. God says, listen, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning, and now I've come down to deliver them. And now I will send you. So then in verses 35 through 38, <clears throat> Stephen says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God has sent as both a ruler and a redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. So Stephen goes and begins to summarize Moses' life. Right, He was the one whom they rejected as ruler and judge, even though God sent him to be what? The ruler and redeemer. But they rejected him. And this was demonstrated as he led them out of captivity, right? You know the, the rest of the story. Moses shows up, deals with Pharaoh, rescues them all. They head out, parts the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness for a while. Um, but you, you know the story, but he's performing signs and wonders in Egypt. He is parting the Red Sea, and then in the wilderness where they were wandering for 40 years, even more signs and wonders are being done. By the way, the reason why they got stuck in the wilderness for 40 years was because, once again, the Israelites rejected God's plan for them. This recurring theme for the Israelites, rejecting God's plan just as they're doing with Jesus. As you remember, one of the accusations against Stephen was that he was leading them away from the traditions that Moses had given them. But the truth is, is that Moses was always pointing towards Jesus. Moses told them that God would raise up another prophet just like him. 
Many of them thought that was Joshua, but it wasn't Joshua whom Moses was referring to. It was Jesus whom Moses was referring to, someone who would be ruler and judge over them and would be their redeemer, just like him, someone who would perform many signs and wonders, which Jesus did. So ruler, judge, redeemer, performing signs and wonders. Sounds like Jesus to me. Moses was always pointing towards Jesus. And the point that Stephen is making is that Jesus is greater than Moses, the lawgiver and savior of Israel from Egypt. Moses saved them from from physical bondage, physical slavery, but Jesus offers eternal life and freedom from sin and death. He should be honored and loved even more than Moses. But they're concerned that God isn't going to move the way he always is. They've decided how God can and will move. Church, we need to make sure that we don't decide for God how he's allowed to move in our lives. Amen. In verse 39 through 41, it says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. And for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we did not know what was become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Even the Israelites, after Moses had led them from captivity, responded much just like the Jewish leaders are responding today. The congregation's on their way to the the promised land, and they turn aside from Moses. Even after he had demonstrated that he was sent by God through freeing them through all the signs and wonders, he had proved that God was with him. And he steps away for a moment to go speak to God, and all of a sudden they turn on him. And really, they turn on God. They turn to idols. It's interesting and still true today that when you turn from the Savior, then you're turning from the God who sent him. Right? They turned from Moses, but ultimately they were turning from God. As soon as they reject or try to replace Moses, they're looking to another God in the form of a golden calf. And if you reject Jesus or try to replace him with something else, then you're rejecting God as well. You see, the the Israelites were ultimately choosing to go back to Egypt, and as a result, slavery. And the same is true for us. If we reject Jesus, then we are choosing a life in captivity to sin and death. Amen? And what's crazy for the Israelites here is that they were abandoning Moses, abandoning Moses and God in an incredible act of disobedience when God was actually preparing the way for them. Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law. How many know that the law was to be a tutor for them until Jesus came? That's what Paul says in the book of Romans. The law was actually sent to prepare them. The law is actually sent to point out how bad things really were, that they needed a savior. The law would ultimately show them that they needed that Savior, and it pointed to Jesus. Moses is up there with God getting things ready, and they turn and run. As we continue on in verse 42 through 43, it says, But God turned away and gave them over to the worship Gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. 
when this happened, God didn't force them to their knees and make them worship him. God is never going to force you to come to him. He desires a relationship with you. He doesn't desire a slave. He doesn't desire someone whose only interaction with him is because they have to do it. So God gives them over to worship of this, this idol. You know, it's one of the ways that I, I, I God does that now. God, if, if you want to put your focus somewhere else, You'll feel conviction from the Holy Spirit. God will continue to draw, to draw you in. He'll still be at the door, knocking, waiting, but he's never going to force you to come back to him. That's a choice that you have to make. And when we make that choice, God leaves us over to our own desires, our own debased mind, to whatever we want to worship. And typically in today's culture, everybody the, the biggest God that everybody still surface today is self, that everybody worships today is self. And God will leave you over to that because he's, He's the perfect gentleman. He's not going to force you back. That's what it says here. He actually gave them over to their desires, which ultimately would have their due effect and destroy them. Just like today, God doesn't force us to serve and worship him. We can make a choice. But if we choose sin, God lets us have it. He leaves us over to it. And the consequences, both in this world and eternity, are dire church don't make that choice keep your eyes on jesus amen but this rejection of god and turning towards other gods would actually be another pattern in israel's history this quote here did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices it's actually from amos 5 25 through 27 and stephen's just pointing out you guys have this pattern pattern of turning away from god and towards anything else that suits your fancy. You're always turning to other gods. Throughout the history of the Jews, there were bright moments where they returned and worshipped God, but much of their history was them running away from him. And that's the point Stephen is trying to make here. Verses 44 through 47, it says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dis dispossessed the nations that God had driven out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. So now Stephen turns back to this idea of tabernacles and tents and temples. Remember one of the accusations against Stephen was that he was speaking against this holy space, this holy place, which was referring to the temple. So Stephen says, listen, while the Jews were in the wilderness, they had the tent of witness, which was the tabernacle. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, was kept. And it was made just like God had, been, had directed Moses to make it. So before this, there was nothing. Then God directs Moses to make the tent of witness. And uh, this was with them while they were wandering through the wilderness. But it also followed them into the promised land as the Gentiles were driven out. And then the land where this tent was placed was not all that important as long as it went where God directed it. And this tent remained all the way through until the days of David. And it was at this time David wanted to build a temple for God. But he was told no because he was a warrior and had spilled blood. So God said, listen, you're not the one who's going to build my temple. So the task remained for Solomon. Solomon. 
In other words, this temple did not exist for a long time. There was no, there was nothing, and then the tabernacle, that moved all around with them, and then finally the temple was built. If they operated so long without a temple, why did the, the, the Jewish leaders insist that the temple was what had to, to be followed for the rest of all time now? I sometimes wonder if that's not why God allowed the temple to be destroyed so they would just get that out of their head. In Acts 7, 48 through 50, it says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? In Second Samuel seven seventeen. And I don't have it here. It's actually quite a long passage. So read it when you have time. Second Samuel 7, 1 through 17, sorry. We see where, where David is, is speaking his desire to build God a place to dwell that is more substantial than the tent. He tells the prophet that's there, and he says, you know what? I live in a house of cedar. God's in this tent. I want to build him something better. And God actually rebukes David a little bit asking, would you build me a house? He says, the entire time I have been in this tent traveling with the Israelites. And he says, you know what? I've never asked any of the judges who I've sent to shepherd my people. I've never asked any of them to build me a house of cedar. So would you build me a house? It's almost like the temple that the Jewish leaders revered so much wasn't quite as important as maybe they thought it was. However, God responds to David that he would build David a house and a throne that endures forever, pointing towards Christ. It's always been pointing towards Christ. So Stephen quotes from Isaiah here, reiterating that God doesn't live in houses made by human hands. And it's really quite silly if you think about it. What could man build for God that compares to what he already has? Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. And we're going to build him something better out of stuff in his footstool? On top of that, everything that, that we have, the earth and all that is in it, was already made by God's hands anyway. That's pretty presumptuous of us to think that we could build something for him. Amen. And then verses 51 through 53, we'll go ahead and end here today. It says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. So Stephen finishes up this speech with a pretty strong rebuke against these religious leaders. You see, the, the religious leaders, they were being stiff-necked. They were, they were resisting the Holy Spirit. 
When he says here, he says, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Basically what he's saying is that your circumcision, right, the symbol of the covenant between God and Abraham that the, all the Hebrews participated in, he says this, this circumcision that you have is only external. It doesn't go any deeper than that. And the truth is, is that you're doing just like your fathers did before you, persecuting God's messengers. You see, they actually killed the ones that announced Jesus was coming. And then they persecuted and killed Jesus himself. They received the law. The one thing that they claimed Stephen is speaking out against, but they don't even follow it themselves. So as we wrap up here, we're going to sum up this entire speech. We're going to reiterate those themes and look how Stephen talked about them. First, God's plan is not stagnant. There has always been change. First, God sent Abraham to a foreign land. Then the move of Israel's people to Egypt and ultimately the freedom was, was fulfilled prophecy spoken by God. Then Moses is used as a member of Pharaoh's household to free them from bondage in Egypt. And finally, there was no tabernacle. Then there was a tabernacle. And then finally, there was a temple made for God. In other words, God's methods for achieving his purpose aren't by the numbers. There's not some template that has to be followed. They change the people, the timing, the methods, however God sees fit. Amen. Turns out it's his plan, not ours. And anytime we try to insert or, or press upon God our plan, well, the Bible's just full of examples of it messing up horribly. And I don't know about you guys, but my life is full of examples of that messing up horribly as I try to impress my plan on God. I have a feeling I'm not alone. Next, the blessings of God are not limited to Israel in the temple grounds. God blessed and called Abraham in Mesopotamia and then Haran. God blessed Joseph and the Israelites in Egypt. God blessed Moses from Midian to come back and save his people from Egyptian bondage. And then finally, after wandering in the desert, they make it to the promised land. You know, the promised land came way after all these other lands that God had moved in. And then finally, the Jewish people have a pattern of rejecting God's plan and the men he sends. I'm going to know that Abraham didn't go straight to where God told him to, but he hung out in Haran a little bit first. Joseph was sold by his brothers after he revealed to them God's plans for his life. Moses was rejected by the Israelites when he first presented himself to them, and then again when he was up receiving the law for them. And it's actually interesting, we mentioned it briefly earlier, that both Joseph and Moses were both rejected the first time that they approached their people. It wasn't until the second time that they came that they were received. And how many know this is going to be true of Jesus as well? They rejected him the first time. They killed him. They sent him to the cross. But when he returns, every knee will bow. Amen. You see, the... The thing is, is the Jewish leaders were doing exactly the same thing that their forefathers always had. And instead of seeing Jesus being pointed to in the scripture and being open to things changing, because that's the pattern we've actually observed by God, is that it changes how he works through time. They were stuck in their ways. 
they had decided that this is how God would move from here to the end of time and weren't open to anything else. They should have been willing to let the focus of God's people go to Jesus instead of being focused on lands and buildings. Amen.